You want to go help him? You want to go help him? I think you're too hot up top. Turn, turn it down a little bit up top. There you go. Just bring it down a little bit. As long as it's up a little bit, I'm fine. Otherwise, we'll go without it. Yeah. And then mute any of the other channels because you've got a hum, and we'll see if it's me or, or this, that that's giving you the hum. If it is, then I'll switch. The scripture this morning is uh, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're continuing on. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to actually start down in verse 10, and uh, I'll, I'll read to 16, and then we'll, we'll uh, go forward here. Talking about faith in Christ and a righteousness that comes from that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal, reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. A testimony. A testimony is something that is given, and uh, Jeff, you want me to just get... tethered you guys will see me walk less and you'll be all the more thankful for it <laughs> a testimony is something that we talk about in court of law it's when you come up and you give a factual statement of truth it's when you give a uh, a uh, character recommendation of somebody but it can also be something that we use here in the church to talk about what God has done in your life a testimony is saying that you are bearing witness, that you are somebody who has, got, has, has seen God do the miraculous in your life. And sometimes those testimonies can come from what he's done for you 20 years ago, and they can be huge, or they can be what God did for you 20 minutes ago. And they're big and they're small. But it's that opportunity to recognize that God has done something in your heart and your life that's worth testifying about. That's worth sharing with others about. And in many church traditions, there's a moment in the service where people are given the opportunity to give a time of testimony. And it usually starts out kind of slow. The person who comes each week does it, and they jump up right away, and thank goodness for that. And then after a few minutes, someone else might pop up, and then pretty soon two people pop up at the same time, and then one tries to sit down, and it gets kind of awkward. But it takes a little bit to get going. Well, this being a mix of Dutch Reformed, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, and Lutheran and otherwise, it might be interesting to see what a testimony time looks like with us. 
So at the start of the service this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to give a testimony. And if you're Pentecostal, you'll say, let's give the devil a black eye, right? Some of you know that. So who would like to share a testimony, either a testimony of, of who you are in Christ Jesus or a testimony of what God has done with you, for you this week? Amen. You can clap for that. Others. Essentially, a full price offer on it this last week. Oh, uh, we're still negotiating the last little bit of language on it, but um, it looks very good. Uh, cash offer, no financing, so uh, we're very grateful. Amen. So that burden's gone now. Yeah. yeah. yeah awesome. Exactly. Awesome. You got time for more? One more. Until uh, I start talking, I got time for plenty more, but. <laughs> I just somehow was like, you know what? I 
can't plan to go, I better go. You know, I, mm. just, I just was like, what the heck? And I was scared. I was scared. I just was like, I don't. Mm. I, don't I didn't even look like an actor I closed. And apparently, with this 40 degrees in Texas this week, I didn't plan to go. I was very cold down there. But um, I, was, I was in the airport, and I just saw a bunch of faces. And I wish I had a teacher now that said, Welcome to Chicago. And, and <laughs> Just being ready. Amen. Thank you. That's apropos. I look forward to uh, where I'm starting this morning. Uh, you know, I have to go out of town for work, and I find myself in different towns, different places, different hotels. And uh, I like to find out what people's ultimate goal is in life. And I, I do that by saying, so tell me about yourself. And they'll start, and they'll tell me what they do for a living, and they'll tell me about this, tell me about that. And so I'll, I'll, get, I'll dig in on the job, especially if they're, they're really talking about the job. And then I always like to ask the question. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes it's a hobby. Sometimes they're, they're eager to tell me about their kids and how they're involved in a sport with the kid or whatever. And I say, so what is it about that thing? 
What is it about that job? What is it about that sport with your kid? What is it about that hobby you have that gets your head to leave the pillow in the morning? What is it that it's so important that you are willing to spend a good portion of your life doing? And a lot of times I love it strangely when somebody, I love it more when they have a great answer. I love it even, uh, but I also love it when they either struggle to come up with an answer or the reason for the job is the money and it's nothing more. Because that affords me an opportunity to start to have a conversation with them about what should be getting their head to leave the pillow in the morning, or at least what gets my head to leave the pillow in the morning. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. In verse 10, we've discovered Paul's ultimate goal in life. The reason Paul got up every single morning, he wanted to know Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to know Christ. Now, Paul had been a believer for 30 years at this point. And yet he still says that I may know Christ. In other words, that I'm continuing to know Christ. And I think we all know here there's a difference between knowing somebody and knowing somebody. This week at, at work, uh, I, I'm not even sure how we had the conversation, uh, but somebody brought up uh, Aurora Christian Schools and uh, Don Beebe. And they started to talk a little bit with the guys around them about, about Don. And I have never personally met Don, so he asked me if I knew him. I said, no, I, I know who he is. I, I know some relatives that he has, but that's as far as it goes. And as the person was talking, things he was saying about Don weren't entirely gelled with what you, I've heard you guys share about him. So, okay, that's, that's fine. But it was weird things like uh, not sure why ACS let him go. And I was like, oh, I didn't know ACS let him go. That's, that's news to me, you know. Or lucky that he found a job at uh, Aurora University. Well, thank goodness for poor Don. He was really, you know, we were, we were praying for him, you know. And I, was, I said, so tell me how you know Don. And as we got into it and started, started the conversation, he'd been to the uh, House of Speed. Is that what, that what it's called, Don? Yeah, twice. And he'd seen Don twice when he'd been there. So it would be the equivalent of, you know, me saying I know Michael Jordan because one time as I was get, working a job at a golf course, he walked by me. Yeah, me, Michael Jordan, we're like this. Or at least we were from here to the cross. That's how close we ever got to one another. But I still know G Michael Jordan. There's knowing somebody that's an acquaintance, right? But Paul says, I want to know Christ. And then there's really knowing someone. Now, Carla and I have known each other uh, since uh, we were teenagers. And... Uh, when we talk to people and we say, you know, we just can communicate now without really words. I, I'll never forget when we were, uh, years ago, we went to buy a car and we're sitting there and we're at the negotiation point and the guy's talking about things and uh, I looked at her and with one look, I told her every way that I wanted her to interact in the rest of this conversation. And she did it perfectly. I mean, I said, he, he said the situation, I said, and are, are you okay with that? And I looked at her, and she paused, and she goes, well, I'm not excited about it. <laughs> yeah, see there? So then the guy went to talk again, and Carla looked at me, and I looked at her, and we both said, stay silent, because the first one to talk in a negotiation loses, if you know sales at all. And with an entire conversation with our eyes, we got exactly where we wanted to be in that negotiation, and that guy had no idea what was going on. Carl and I can look across the room at each other and know when it's time to leave a situation. Carla can look at me up here and go, wrap it up with her eyes. 
I know the rest of you try, but we don't know each other like that. <laughs> we know each other. We really do know each other. We are, we are part of each other's lives. And so when Paul says his desire is to know Christ, he's saying, I want to know more of him every day. Think about Peter. Peter knew Jesus. Peter served with, alongside Jesus for a couple of years. But I think Peter never knew Jesus until the day he was able to say, you are Christ, son of the living God. That's the start of Peter truly knowing Jesus. And so Paul started out this section at the top. We talked about it last week on the focus of saying, if you want to live a happy life, if you want to live a joyous life, if you want to live a life worth living, it starts with putting your faith in what he's going to do in you, not what you can do for him. And Paul says, as that continues on, and I've, as Paul has learned what it's like to live a life that is based on faith in Christ, he says, I want to know that more and more and more every day. Every day when I wake up, I want to know Jesus. So what does that entail? Well, it begins, I believe, with the power of his resurrection. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You see, a Christian is not someone who knows about Jesus. A Christian is someone who has seen Jesus at the cross. A Christian is someone whose hearts are moved when we see not just that Jesus died, but that Jesus died for us. A Christian is someone who sees a Jesus who suffers, but sees meaning in that suffering. A Christian is someone who looks at all those moments where Jesus came forward for us and said, in the midst of all that that looked like weakness and suffering, it was power and victory. And a Christian is someone who understands that when the world struggles to figure out what that means. In Ephesians, Paul tells us the power of Christ's resurrection is a resurrection life that raised him from the dead. It was a power that gave Jesus victory over the grave. You and I were bought with a heavy price. Not only was that price hefty, it was a debt you and I could not afford. And without the power of Jesus' resurrection, you and I could not be saved. We couldn't be made right. And even now, every day you face temptations and struggles that are too much for you to bear on your own. We talk about the power of God, but sometimes we talk about it in the context of a moment that happened a long time ago. When he took us as a sinner who didn't know the truth, who didn't understand the struggles, and he transformed our life. And Paul is saying, yes, that's true, but every day when you get to know him, you need more of that power. You have situations you live in at work. You have situations you live in at home. You have situations that come out of nowhere in life. And if you try to take them on under your own power, you're going to do as well as you can do. And you and I both know there are problems and there are struggles and there are situations in life and there are even opportunities in life when saying I did my best doesn't make the situation any better. The only way that we can say we do our best is if we say I live through this journey knowing his power. I put all of my faith and all my trust in him. Psalm 121 says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. This isn't a, just a future power where one day we're going to experience it. This is a right now present effect to it. 
It's a power at work in the life of the believer today. Paul says, I want, to know his, I want to know his power. I want to know the joy of his resurrection. When I'm in prison and I'm in chains, I can survive this thing because I'm living on his power, not my own power to get through it. For those of you that are living with, with illness or disease or problem or sickness that a friend has that you are powerless to help them in, you get through those moments because of the power in Christ. For those of you that face temptation, that the same stinking thing comes up over and over again, and you feel like, God, why am I still dealing with this same thing over and over and over again? God says, keep relying on my power. I'm not saying it's going away tomorrow. Paul had a thorn in the flesh for a long time, and that thorn in the flesh was a great reminder of how much he needed me and my power. I know in my own life, uh, one issue I very strongly have is my anger, my temper, my boss told me this week when we were talking about a problem, he's, he's talking very nicely about it. It was funny. He goes, you don't always have a good poker face when you're upset. <laughs> That's a kind way to say the whole room could see how angry you were getting as you were trying to keep it all under control. But when I try and keep it under control, eventually it is going to boil over. That pot is going to boil over. And when it does boil over, what that tells me is I haven't been spending much time with the Lord learning about his power, learning about his victory. I've been spending too much time about Bob Crane's goals, Bob Crane's ways. Paul wants to know Christ's power, and every time Paul knows Christ's power, he has a testimony about a victory that leads him to the next opportunity to know Christ's power. But you see, if all I wanted to know in my friendships and my relationships were the things that they could give me, the power... What gain is that for that relationship? It's of none whatsoever. And so Paul says, I want to know his power, but look what he goes on to say. The power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming, hit like, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Share in Christ's sufferings. You want to hear something fun? I was uh, uh, looking through different, uh, uh, um, not commentaries, uh, devotions online uh, about this section of scripture. Because sometimes you can find good quotes, solid things that you can, you can use through that. I can't tell you how many I came across that talked about Christ's power and then jumped right away to verse 12. <laughs> and just skipped that whole suffering section altogether. They just, they, they just ignored it. They, Let's know Jesus' power. Not that I've already attained this, but I'm already perfect. Yep. Nope, they skipped all the way over verse, verses, verses, the rest of verse 10 and 11, went straight to verse 12. Why? Well, number one, it's very uncomfortable, isn't it? I know his power. We talk a lot in the church about his power. I don't know that we talk about sharing in the sufferings. And we all know that there are churches to the... the there are churches this day, and there are people this day, that think that if you are a part of any sort of suffering... It's revealing a lack of faith in your life. It's revealing something wrong with you. It's much like when, when Job had the situation and his buddies were telling him why he did all these things wrong. Because you're suffering. So if you're suffering, that must mean God's mad at you. Well, I can tell you that if Carla is suffering, I don't let her off to the side and just say, she's on her own. Call me back when you've got power. 
I can tell you, I've, I've sat with couples whose uh, spouse uh, had cancer, advanced stages of cancer, and the other spouse is sitting there at the bedside, and I'm like, do you want, do you want to go somewhere? Do you want to get some time away? And they say, I consider it a badge of honor that I'm here to provide any comfort that I can in this moment. If they have to be here, I have to be here. I'm not going anywhere. Joining in that. But then, as a Western church, we skip over that part. But it was a huge part of Jesus and the apostles' teaching. The Son of Man came to suffer, right? The, the, the uh, one man says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. What did Jesus tell him? You have no idea what you're asking for. My bed tonight might be the rock out in the desert. The fox, the fox has got better, uh, better uh, plans for where he's going to sleep than I do. My next meal is going to come from however we figure out how my next meal is going to come from. If you want to live a life with Christ, it's going to be a tough life. It's going to be through. Jesus, is, it's funny, there were times when he was preaching and the crowd was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then he would tell them some truth about the suffering, some truth about what life was going to be like, and they all fell away. Why? Because they still didn't know him. You see, I think the knowing Jesus starts with accepting his power and feeling it in our lives. And it gets to a point of maturity that when that suffering comes, we take it on. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for considering me such a part of your life and such a part of your family and such a part of who you are that you've trusted that I'm going to stick with you as we go through this together. Suffering takes a deep conviction that God is at work. Suffering takes eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit to see that God is sovereign and he's truly in control of the universe, even if what's happening around you doesn't exactly look like it. For Paul, the goal of suffering or serving Jesus was, more, uh, was worth more to him than his comfort or than his relief. You think about people who are training for a marathon or people who are training for an athletic thing, and you get to know them, and you look at what they do to their bodies. The fact that, you know, like, like dancers and marathon runners will never have regular toes or toenails ever again for the rest of their life. They will constantly be black or some other weird shape or something like that. The fact that when Dan Hampton, uh, if you ever go see Dan Hampton and he walks in a room, this is how Dan walks in a room. He has to do that because he doesn't have the ligaments and tendons anymore to walk like a normal human being. Dan Hampton, one time when he was going to get up from a chair, he told me, or he told me, he told the crowd, I'm going to need a plan because his body had been so abused for the thing that he loved that it no longer worked the way it should work for a man of his age. But it was worth it all to them because they knew their goal was worth it. And so for Paul, suffering for Jesus because God has a bigger plan, is worth way more than Paul's comfort or Paul's relief. So whether you're uh, training for a marathon or you're missing a promotion at work because of your faith, whether you're risking offending a family member or caring for a sick child, you only stay the course if you're convinced the goal is worth it. And you and I stay the course when we know Christ is enough, worth more than anything this world has to offer. John Patton was an a early 20th century, like 1900, uh, missionary. And he experienced a life of horrible loss and sorrow. As they went into uh, foreign lands, uh, many missionaries had died along. He'd known a lot of his, his uh, brothers and Lord had died. He'd lost family members along the way. 
And there was one night when John was at the top of the tree as high as it could hold him while cannibals shot muskets underneath, trying to make him the guest of honor at their next dinner. And when he came down, he wrote in his journal that night, Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw closer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves as I told all my heart to Jesus. I was alone and yet not alone. If it be glory, my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in that tree to feel my Savior's spiritual presence to enjoy his consoling fellowship. He could have been anywhere else on earth. And he said, tonight, I want to be up in that tree. Because in the midst of that, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that terrifying fear, I could feel Christ's love for me. In our lives in the 21st century, the cultural pressures may be different. The sacrifices we are asked to make may be different. But the gospel call is the same. We are to live lives focused on attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not because it's something that's uncertain, not because there's any question that we'll attain it, but that we must reflect on what it means to be with Christ forever. Now, we talk about the power of his resurrection. We talk about maturing to the point where, there's suffer, where we can join in this suffering. But if you're like me, that can feel like there's a big cavern between those two pieces of my growth, of those two pieces of my maturity. And Paul lets us a little bit off the hook in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says, what I'm calling you to is something I'm still growing in and something people are going to still grow in until they either reach the church triumphant in heaven through their death or they reach it through the, uh, uh, through, uh, the uh the second coming of Christ. Losing, losing my thoughts here. Looking at Vince, he's just grinning at me. <laughs> mean. <laughs> Looked right at Vince. He's like, yeah, you're on your own. <laughs> exactly. But he says, I press on towards the goal. So Paul says... You should live a life that every day you want to be more like Christ. You want to know his power. You want to know his victory. You want to spend the time in suffering with him. You have to also know that that is something that is going to be a journey for you for the rest of your life. And then you say, okay, Paul, I get all that, but how do I do all of that? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. And he goes into verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jerry Seinfeld has a stand-up about the Olympics, and uh, Jerry says, you know what medal I would never want? The silver. He said, gold, you got the victory of the gold. Uh, the bronze, okay, so you lost. Silver? congratulations on being the first guy that lost. And he says, with the silver becomes a lot of responsibility because it's not like when these races and these swim heats and all these other things, like there's seconds that separate you. It's like one, one hundredth or two hundredths of a second, and that's it. And then that guy's got gold and you've got silver. And Jerry says, so every time you meet someone, they're going to go, so what happened? Just sneeze? Did you, did, did you, did you not hear the gun go off? Did you look to see if he was behind you? He went right past you. 
So Jerry says, I, I don't want second place. He says, give me third place and get me out of that. And I think that that is a great analogy for life. It's that idea that life can be lived always moving forward and always living in what God has for us. Until that moment, we think about checking our surroundings to see how we're doing. And that's the moment where something can come forward and take you over. And so Paul says, uh, I, want, I, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind me. I forget what lies behind me. Paul is saying that Paul isn't saying he doesn't know his past. He's not saying he's got amnesia. He just got through telling us all about his past. Remember when he said, I used to be this kind of guy. I used to be very religious. But now I'm somebody who lives in the victory of Jesus Christ. I used to go after and try and kill Christians. And now I'm one of them and living for God. So Paul knows his past. But Paul says, I'm not going to let my past dictate my future. All those credentials I shared with you, they're garbage. They're in the past. Even as a believer, one time Paul and, uh, Paul and Barnabas had an argument. They disagreed about a guy. Paul didn't trust him. Barnabas did. It got so heated. Paul went this way. Barnabas went that way. Everybody won. God got to spread the gospel even further than he would have had the two of them stuck together. Great job on the planning, guys. Barnabas got to prove Paul wrong, which has got to feel pretty good because Paul is pretty smart. Because I think it was John Mark, if I remember correctly, was the one that uh, he had the problem with. John Mark turned out to be a great guy, just had made one mistake that Paul couldn't forgive him for. And Paul and Barnabas get to have that great awkward man moment where you go up there and you go, Paul, yeah, about that, yeah, we're good, and come back together again. But does every time they see each other they think about that? No, they're, they, are, they are moving ahead. Paul had to call out Peter at one point because Peter was acting like a fool, basically, at a church picnic, and he was hanging out with all the cool kids, and he was ignoring all the kids the cool kids didn't like. I'm paraphrasing. Please fix that at some point in digs. Um, there we go. <laughs> and so Paul had to call Peter out and say, what you're doing is basically racist. You cannot live like this anymore. You are a new creation. You have to get beyond the old ways and get to the new ways. But then Peter later in 2 Peter was able to write about Paul and the wonderful uh, love that the two had for each other and the wonderful testimony that Paul has in his life. So it's not that they don't know the past. It's that the past doesn't own them. And for too many people, they live their lives as if the past is everything. Some people live with their past and they live in the pain. And the pain becomes the thing that dictates who they are today. Other people live in the past and they live in the ways other people have hurt them. And they, they let that define who they are today. Other people live in the past, and they live in the victories of who they were. Like the varsity football player that shows back up to the high school three or four years later, still living in the past when nobody even knows who they are anymore. Some people live too much time in the past, and every time you put your focus on the pain of the past, every time you put your focus on the way you make mistakes or people hurt you, or even every time you put your focus on the things you did right that you still think is what's going to get you to the next level, those become the prison bars that come around you and hold you in and hang on to you. 
And Paul says, you won't even let Jesus reach in through those prison bars and unlock it and pull you out because you spend so much time focusing on what's back there. We can speak about all kinds of problems we've had in life, and Paul would say, go to 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As a culture, we tend to love the past. We tend to be people who, who dwell on it a little too much. There are counselors who say, we've got to dig all the way deep into your past. We've got to figure out all those garbagey things that were going on. And when we get all of those things put together, then we'll figure out how to fix you. Now once you're fixed, you're going forward. And it's not that those pieces of information don't have value. It's just those will not be the tools that you use to move forward. The Bible is filled with all kinds of people who have a horrible past. I don't have a single one of them that God said, let's go and talk about your past a lot so we can get forward to your future. God says, I'm doing a new thing. Get in this power, get in this victory, and move forward with that. If you're going to win a race and you're going to run the race, you're never going to win if you're looking back to see who's behind you. As Jerry Seinfeld taught us, that split second causes you to lose that race. So Paul says, forget what lies behind and then strain toward what lies ahead. Not just go for what lies ahead, but strain toward what lies ahead. What lies ahead? What's God have for you tomorrow? Anybody know? I need specifics. What time is he going to put someone in Joe's life tomorrow that Joe's going to get to speak to and he's going to have a testimony next week about? Noon. Okay, noon. We don't know, do we? Paul is straining towards running right out in a race that he doesn't even know what the, what the chart of the course is. He doesn't, he's never run it before. There's no Google Maps on his GPS to tell him where he's going to go. He is straining forward. He doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. Yes, he knows what the ultimate finish line is, just as we all do. But he has to put his faith in what's been known as a long obedience in the same direction. One foot in front of the other. And the reason Paul's able to lean in, and I mean just pour his whole body into whatever is held tomorrow, is because he knows who holds tomorrow. He knows the guy who built the track. He knows the guy who knows whether it's an obstacle course or it's a sprint or it's an Ironman. He knows the person who's going to be able to show him every next step to get him to the next step. My father-in-law and my my brother-in-law went to the Grand Canyon two summers ago. They took the mules down to the bottom. And uh, my father-in-law, you you should hear him tell the story. It's a wonderful story. But he said, you know, you're on this mule. You don't really consider them a smart animal. But you have to put 100% of your faith of your life in their hands. Because they know where they're going. They've gone back and forth over and over again. He said, there's points where I can't see ground any direction. And the mule is turning in place. I don't know why he's turning, but eventually he starts walking again. And they are told over and over again, don't try and steer the mule. Not that you could anyhow, because that mule's not going to die for you. (laughs) But they had to believe every step of the way that that mule knew what's happened. And I think about that, that we have the creator of the universe, and sometimes we put more trust in the mules of our plans than we do in what he has. We know who we're leaning into, so let's lean into it. Ephesians 2 says, we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works. Good works, which God prepared ahead of time. So we know he has a plan. We know he has a purpose. 
We know he's pulled us in for that plan. Do we need to know anything else? God has a purpose for your life and my life that goes way beyond a nine to five and a house in the burbs. That plan may sometimes have with the times of suffering, but when we're in the power of Jesus, we're glad to be part of that suffering. Now, something hit me as I prepared for this message. Because I can think there are times in my life when I don't want to strain toward what lies ahead. Because, to be honest, there's times when I go, I don't know that I'm going to like what God has ahead in this particular case or that particular case. I felt like a fool yesterday driving back from the store when it hit me. You don't like what God's done in your life so far? God doesn't have a good track record for leading you down the right path? I can't think of a single time when I followed God when I'm sorry that I followed God. So why would I not want to strain out there for him today? Yes, it's going to cost me things that I I don't know it's going to cost me. Yes, I'm going to have to give up things that I didn't really want to give up. But then at the end, as Paul has said earlier in this chapter, it's just garbage anyhow. It's all going to burn up. So strain ahead and then press on toward the goal and keep your eye on the finish line. And that pressing on towards the goal for all of us Paul isn't looking back, he's looking forward, and he's pressing to that ultimate victory. And let me run through these last few verses as a close. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it also to you. Only let us hold true to that which we have truly attained. Everything Paul has been talking to you and I about in this area, he's saying this is Christian maturity. Christian maturity starts with a faith in God. It lives life in his power. It thanks him for those moments where he suffers, and it presses full on into whatever he's got next for me. And the more you do that, the more mature you become, and you grow more and more and more like Christ. And the good news is, every time you don't think that way, God will correct you. God will put you back where you need to go. You see, if you're a believer, God has done something in your life, and he's probably done something in your life today. Might be big, might be small, but he's done it. Let that testimony be that reminder to you that you can keep pressing in to what God has for you. And then verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there's two things here. The first thing, I'll do the, I'll do the second one first. Somebody should be following you. If you are a Christian and you are a believer, there should be somebody who isn't as far along the road as you are that should be following you. If there's not, you should pray today. Your prayer this week should be that God puts someone in your life who needs to see where you're going. And you need to share those testimonies with them. And they need to ask you questions that that they'll think are embarrassing and you'll be like, I had that question at one time. That's never an embarrassing question. If you don't have someone in your life like that right now, you need to find that person. Uh, Then Paul says... Hey, church, you can use me right now for that. Paul puts himself out there and says, I'm the guy. You can can totally rely on me. You can look to me. We should all have a Paul who we're looking towards who is going to speak to us in those things. If you don't, sometimes it's pretty hard to navigate those waters. When uh, I was a pastor here in Aurora, I used to spend a lot of time with Randy Schoff over at Warehouse Church. Randy drive me crazy. I'm I'm a cynic by nature. You know, I kind of look for the, how somebody did something wrong or somebody did something bad. My family loves to point out when someone makes a mistake, you know. And then I get with Randy. 
And I say, boy, that, that, you know, the way they did that thing over at Wayside this week, that was dumb. He goes, really? I'm just so glad those brothers are over there serving the Lord and doing their thing, you know? I was like, well, that wasn't the way I wanted that conversation to go. <laughs> and I got to learn after a while, every time I'm going to talk to Randy, I better find something optimistic to say about the situation because he doesn't do pessimistic. And after a while of doing that over and over again, do you know what happened to me? I started looking at where God was moving and God was working and doing all these great things. Because Randy Schof taught me that. Don't ever tell him. We don't need an ego thing over here, okay? Uh, but Randy Schof taught me those things. And I was in my 30s. So I'd gone 30 years without not ha having the power to be an optimist. Do you know the transformation that has had in my home, in my relationships, in how I do ministry, in how I work at work? All because I got with one guy who was further along the way than I was, and I was looking at it all down here, and he was looking at it all up here, and he took me there. Paul is saying, get someone in your life who knows the power of Jesus, who knows how to suffer, and is going to be alongside you to remind you of why we're doing what we're doing. And then I'm going to summarize this verse 18 and 21 and say this. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are citizens of earth, those people live their life in the 605 zip code around here, and those that are, know that they are citizens of heaven, who realize the 605 is just a place they lay their head at night, but they're actually resident aliens. You're the second group, they're here and they serve Jesus. And when they make a decision in life, like a career or a job or something like that, they put it against how that's going to impact their ability to serve the Lord. When they look at what they want their kids to be or achieve in life, they look at it through the lens of love and say, how do I create a home for this child that knows that prayer is important, that knows time and serving God is important, that no time and the word is important? How do I come to work and be a witness without having to say I'm a witness because of what God is doing in my life? But that group shares in the power and the suffering. The other group that Paul talks about in that passage are people who, sa who says the en their end is the destruction in verse 19. Their God is their belly and the glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. In other words, these people like life in the comfort zone. These people are people who really think it their job in terms of uh, what opportunity they're going to have next. They really don't consider God in that thing. They look at how they're going to work from this house to this house to this house so they can get the better house. And it's not that having a good house is nice. It's that if they had to choose between serving God and not achieving what they wanted or achieving what they wanted and being a lot more comfortable, they're going to choose to be a lot more comfortable. And the band can come up and I close with this one last question or one last statement. If you show me the five people you hang out with, I will show you which one of those two groups you were going to be in the next couple of years. Paul isn't just saying be one or the other. Paul's saying stop hanging out with that other group. Stop making them put uh, the conversation and the knowledge and the pieces into your life. It's not that you can't be with them. It's not that you can't minister to them. It's that they shouldn't be influencing you. And I can tell you every aspect of life. If you look back past on your last three or four or five years, and you look at the people who you hung out with, you're going to find you're a lot more like them and a lot less like you were three or four years ago. Ask any parent who sent a kid to college, and they will tell you a different kid came back three or four years later because mom and dad were no longer that primary influence. Somebody else was. And then four or five years in work or ministry, someone else was. So Paul is saying examine your relationships. And if most of your life is spent with that group that's in comfort zone, find some new friends. They can be acquaintances, 
but don't let them speak those lies into your life. Let's pray.